1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Ari Ariel, the host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Emily Alice Katz about her new book, Bringing Zion Home, Israel and American Jewish Culture, 1948 to 1967. Hi, Emily. Welcome to the show.
0: Hi. um, Thanks for having
1: me. Thank you for being with us. To start, I'm wondering if you could um, begin by telling us a little bit about yourself and and maybe how you came to write this book.
0: Yeah, sure. So I did my Ph.D. in modern Jewish studies uh, at the Jewish Theological Seminary. Um, I finished there at, in 2008. And my background is also in Jewish art. Um, so it's sort of Jewish art, literature, history. Um, and I came to the sort of the topic of Israel and American Jewish culture um, back when you know I was in grad school. Um, I took a course with Barbara Kirshenblatt Gimlet um, at NYU, who had done work on um, World's Fair, the classes on World's Fairs, and she'd done some work on the Palestine Pavilion, um, some really great work on the Palestine Pavilion in 1939. And we were talking about it and realized that, um, you know, there was this uh, World's Fair in 1964 in New York, of course, and that um, no one had ever looked at the Israel Pavilion there. And what I realized as I started to dig into it was that it wasn't actually an Israel Pavilion. It was an American Israel Pavilion um, that had been, you know, organized and created, put together by uh, an American, you know, a group of Americans. Jewish businessmen, essentially, um, created this pavilion to kind of showcase Israel, but it was all kind of these American Jews acting as as Israeli impresarios, uh, trying to sell Israeli goods, trying to tell about Israeli history and to do it in this very American context. And and that, to me, opened the door into this whole whole realm of stuff that um, no one had really looked at yet um, about how American Jews were really grappling with Israel in their everyday lives uh, between 1948 and 1967. Um, so, after Israel's establishment, but before um, the Six Day War, which is usually thought of as a kind of a watershed in American Jewish history um, when all of a sudden seemingly overnight American Jews were, s- were sort of ready to be you know vocal and militant about about Israel and that you know the period in between those years had, had been seen for a long time by historians this kind of um this fallow period when American Jews weren't really doing anything about Israel they were thinking about other things and Israel wasn't at the top of the agenda um, and so starting with this World's Fair that, you know, again, was this entree into this topic where I, I start to think about, well, you know, sort of in passing, all these historians have said, well, you know, American Jews were doing Israeli folk dance and they were doing this and that. But, you know, let's talk about other things. And so I wanted to to actually look at these cultural engagements um, that, you know, the ways in which American Jews were really. Trying to come to terms with, or trying to imagine Israel um, as this, you know, here was this new nation state that they had to kind of develop this relationship with. And my argument is that um, that the cultural realm was really the place it was happening. And those sort of, again, what were thought of as in between years, you know, later on by historians and in the 50s and 60s, when maybe Israel, because there weren't any, you know, major, you know, kind of global crises um, between 48 and 67. Of course, there was this Suez Sinai War um, in 56, but otherwise. um, there were these years in which it wasn't as much about kind of rallying the troops for these massive outpourings of aid um, or political influence, but was more of this coming to to know Israel or for American Jews to come to feel that they were they were knowing Israel. And I and what I what I argue is that it was by means of things like Israeli folk dance, by organizing um, exhibitions of Israeli art and collecting Israeli art. Um, by uh, writing books about Israel and reading books about Israel, uh, and these were years even before Exodus. You know, Leon Uris's huge blockbuster was published, and so I wanted to look at these um, things that, you know, when you start to talk to people, say, oh, yeah, I did Israeli folk dance or, you know, of course I read, you know, some of these books in the early 50s, um, but it's something that historians hadn't really looked at, um, you know, uh, squarely you know at these things that were happening in the cultural realm. So anyway that's uh that's sort of the genesis of the project and that's that's really in essence what um what I wanted to do with it.
1: So maybe we could talk about some of those cultural realms specifically mm-hmm. um and and maybe we'll start with writing because you mentioned Exodus. Can you to give us a little bit about the, the literature on Exodus and why that's such a, a pivotal moment?
0: Yeah, sure. So Exodus, um, which again, uh, Leon Yers was the author, it came out in 58. The film version, um, which was uh, directed by Otto Preminger, came out in 1960. And the book itself was a huge, huge bestseller. I think it was on the bestseller uh, you know, list for, you know, five months or something like that. Um, and really a breakthrough uh, in, in those terms. It was about, you know, the birth of Israel. Um, a lot of the book is actually about, you know, there's a lot about the Holocaust. So also historians look at that as a time when um, the, the book as a book that really was one of the first two in a very kind of public way grapple with the Holocaust, grapple with Israel's birth. Um and you know the image of Jews in that book is of these, you know, very muscular you know, proud manly Jews who were finally, you know, on their own two feet and fighting for themselves. And that certainly is, you know, the image we get from the film as well um, with uh, Ari ben Kanan being played by Paul Newman. I mean, really cultural touchstones from those from those years in the late 50s and early 60s. Um, and definitely, I mean, I agree that this was a moment that Israel, um, this was a big deal for certainly for, for um proponents of Israel for kind of boosters of Israel uh, in American life that they they could look at the book and the film and say, well, look at what Jews have done and that people were reading the book and people were seeing the film and, and um, these did, you know, The book and the film did, you know, really, um, I think, have an impact, and lots of people, you know, say had an impact in how Americans thought about Israel, as being like America, as being, you know, uh, a partner and, and, uh, you know, uh, a realm of of tough fighting Jews. Um, But what I, you know, try to show in my chapter about uh, Israel books, you know, as as I talk about them, is that first of all, some of those themes and ideas were actually prevalent much earlier than that, really starting in the late '40s when there were nonfiction books and a couple of them very popular particular books about Israel um, that were um, that were taken up by publishers. There was a whole spate, I mean, dozens and dozens of, of these Israel books that these various publishing houses were publishing, so that some of these tropes you see even earlier, um, you know, that then are taken up in a fictional form um, by Leon Uris. But also, I mean, part of what I'm, you know, trying to show is that there were other um, kinds of notes that were hit. There were other themes that were actually surfacing in these books that were, you know, none of them as popular as Exodus, but that were um you know Uh, Jewish women, uh, Jewish men, Jewish organizations were buying these books, were talking up these books, were reading these books, um, and that there were these even, you know, subgenres among them, including, you know, most prominently, I would say, a kind of women's interest subgenre of this Israel book, (laughs) Um, which was very different in many ways from the kind of exodus, what we think of as sort of the exodus oh that was the image of Israel. Well, what I'm showing is there were other images as well, that it was about, you know, some of these books, these women's books were about um, American housewives, essentially, in Israel during a period of austerity, during the War of Independence, and then also in the 50s um, and through through the 60s, um, through things like austerity, um, looking at how women raised children uh, in places like Jerusalem in those years. Um, You know, what was it like to be going from a, you know, context, an American context, uh, which was boom, you know, sort of a booming economy and, you know, all kinds of newfangled things that, that women um, in the home could use to cook or to raise their children or to entertain. Well, what was it like to go to Israel and to encounter something very different? And so a number of women wrote books, both Jewish and non-Jewish actually wrote wrote books um, in this in this mold um, who were trying to raise kids and to cook and to shop and to, to make sense of, um, you know, this new nation state in, in that context. And so it's a very different view of Israel. Um, it's still a very, you know, very positive and very partisan view of Israel, but quite different from what we've seen if all we look at is, you know, Exodus. And if all we think about is, you know, kind of Paul Newman.
1: Um, As somebody who has some interest in food studies, I, saw, I thought the section on, on cookbooks was particularly interesting because it really speaks to the embodiment of Israeli culture in, in some way in American Jewish lives.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that was really starting to happen then. Um, I mean, it's exploded even more, I would say, food, you know, now, you know, a, a lot has, has changed even since the 50s and 60s. But this was the period in which, yeah, the first cookbooks were being published. And these American Jewish women were trying to make sense of, well, what is this thing called hummus? And how do I make it? And can I alter it to make it palatable to American, you know, to American taste? So it's always in this, in this chapter and, and other places in the book, too, um, you know, what I see is this Alternating between um you know uh, the the you know what was Israeli what was particularly Israeli about this Israeli culture, you know, in what ways were um sort of Yemenite culture influencing this or sort of more Eastern and what American Jews thought of as exotic food or dance um, or you know, art you know, wanting to bring that into the picture, but at the same time to assure American audiences that, well, it's exotic, but not too exotic. And here are these ways in which Israel is very much like America. Um, So they really, you know, wanted to play it both ways and to highlight both things, both the things that were very different about Israeli culture, but also the things that were analogous um, to post-war American culture. So certainly both those things were going on in the food and, and in all these other areas as well.
1: In terms of the audience, do, we, do you have some sense of who the readership was and what sort of reception the, the books got? I mean, I, I know you mentioned that also there's a non-Jewish audience, but in general, who's the readership and what kind of reception did the books
0: get? Yeah, I mean, there was definitely a sort of a built-in readership, certainly in the, the women's organizations. You think about something like Hadassah, the Women's Zionist Organization of America, um, who were, you know, very active in this realm in both promoting books and reviewing the books and, you know, buying the books um forming book clubs also through you know Jewish book council. There were all kinds of things happening in these years. And these were really the years where were you know things like Jewish Book Council were really um kind of creating a niche in American Jewish life, um, creating a, you know, kind of an audience for Jewish books, making sure that was happening. And so there were book groups Um, that they were encouraging, that the Book Council was encouraging, you know, Jewish Book Month and, you know, the creation of of Jewish home libraries. And so there was a kind of built-in audience that was being created within kind of the Jewish organizational sphere for Jewish books that then publishers were aware of. Some were Jewish specialty publishers who were, you know, active in in publishing Israel books, but also other, um, not specifically Jewish publishers were getting involved as well, but they certainly you know, going through Publishers Weekly um, from those years, you see that the expectation was that the Jewish readers would be there first, that there was a kind of ready audience of Jewish book buyers and Jewish readers, but then a sense that if you could get Jews to read and to buy books, that that was the way um, that you could build an, a broader audience as well. That There seemed to be, that Jews seemed to be acting in these years, and this wasn't true just of, of publishing, but in other areas of the arts as well. Um, they were sort of the harbingers. They were... Um, Again, I talk about American Jews as tastemakers in these years, um, that they were, you know, really participating disproportionately in a lot of the kind of cultural consumption, whether it was books or art or dance, um, and then kind of leading the way. You know, at one point, a cultural commentator, uh, David Boroff, who was writing a lot about American Jewish culture in these years, said something like, if you can get Jewish women, you know, to buy these books, then you're basically um, blazing a trail straight to the bestseller you know, bestseller lists. And that certainly wasn't true for, for um, you know, there are many you know, books that were being published, you know, Jewish books, Israel books that, that didn't make the bestsellers list. But there was, a you know, certainly um, some truth to that, um, that if you could get Jews to buy books, Jewish women specifically, but also Jews more generally to buy books, um, that that was a way of, of um, you know, getting a wider audience for books, that that was the path um, to, to kind of publicizing books and, and getting people interested. Um, so certainly the Jewish readers were kind of the, the primary audience. Um, but then there were, you know, books that were being written with, with non Jewish audiences in mind as well, and non Jews who were writing books. Um, you know, Robert St. John, who wrote Shalom piece, um, which was published in 49 and actually did make the bestseller list for a while. Uh, he was not Jewish and he was a reporter um, who had really made his name during World War Two. Um, and there was certainly an, an assumption, I think, by the publisher that he was going to be reaching a broader audience. That it wasn't just going to be Jews, you know, buying his books. And it wasn't just
1: Jews. So I thought the the role of non-Jews in Israeli folk dance was also really interesting. Um, <laughs> and I have to say that the title of this chapter is awesome. Horror Nannies and Yemenite Hoedowns. is really a, a great title. Um but can you give us some background on uh, well, maybe first on Israeli folk dance more generally, where it comes from and how it gets to the United sure. States and then talk about who's dancing and, and
0: Yeah, sure. So um so yeah, I mean to talk about Israeli folk dance, of course, um you have to talk about, you know, what was happening in Israel in, in those years. Um and, you know, certainly in the thirties and forties both Palestine, Jewish Palestine and Europe were really um the seedbeds of a you know a new Jewish or Israeli, as it came to be known, um, folk dance canon. There was a sense that, okay, if you're gonna build a nation, and others, you know, think about Nina Spiegel, who's written, you know, about this, um, that this was really central to the nation building project. You had to have a, a dance canon. Um so certainly a lot of this was emanating from um, from the sort of Jewish dancers in Europe who then went to to Palestine and helped to build that the dance canon there. Um, and it wasn't just Europe. I mean, there were also Yemenite you know Jewish dancers who were building that, and who, you know, who created the National Dance Theater of Israel, um, you know, in Baal. But also in America, really starting around the same period in the 1930s, there were. Um people uh, who had who you know were Jewish dance educators, people like Dora Lapson, who was very active in New York, uh, who came through modern dance, who was um, trained as a as a modern dancer, but who was also a Jewish educator and a Jewish dance choreographer who was active in the same year. So certainly very much in touch with what was happening in Palestine and then in Israel, but also creating. In America, um, Israeli or, or Jewish dance forms, Palestinian Jewish dance forms. Um, so there was a dialogue between these centers of Jewish dance. Um, so some of this was being pulled from Israel, but also again, some of it was being created by um, by very important Jewish dance, you know, choreographers. I mentioned Barra Lapson, Fred Burke was another one who, sort of follow this trajectory. He had been in Vienna, but then um, immigrated to the U.S. and, you know, went back and forth from Israel to the U.S. And so all these people were in conversation with each other. So within the the Jewish sort of organizational realm, um, there were these choreographers and then Zionist youth was really critically important as well. Um, these are people in the Zionist youth movements like Habonim, Hashomer Hatzair, Young Judea, really all, you know, all over the spectrum um politically, um, but who were very active also in the the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s, in um, you know dancing, you know Israeli folk dances among themselves, and bringing it to the wider public, even on national television. So certainly in the Jewish organizational sphere, those were the primary actors: the 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 Fred Burks, the Dvorah Lapsons, and then the the young the youth, right? The Zionist youth. At the same time though there was a huge you know a hugely popular international folk dance movement uh, in the 40s 50s and 60s um, that was really you know think about this as a form of really post-war liberalism um these were people who you know the roots of that were really in um the progressive era. Uh, people were interested in kind of integrating immigrants into the American, into American society, but, you know, who were proponents of immigrant gifts, as it was known, um, who thought that um, folk dance in particular uh, really served as a way of uh, really physically, actually, literally physically bringing people together, that it was a kind of democracy in action. And it was through folk dance that you would meet people who weren't like yourself, that you would learn dances of other groups. And this would be an aid to kind of intergroup relations. And then and really, in the Cold War, it became a, a kind of international relations, a, a kind of conduit for um, building relations with other national groups. Um, and again, this was a very liberal notion of. Um, of kind of the post-war world, right, and that, that the arts and that dance would um, could, could play a role in bringing people together when there was so much sort of the, in the atomic era, you know, there were um, many, you know, ways in which the world was not <laughs> coming together, but that folk dance was this kind of international language um, that people could do. And so Israeli folk dance um, was one of the really favorite genres among these practitioners of international folk dance. Um, and so there were, I mean, uh, whether it was coming from a religious perspective, there was a uh, an Israeli folk dance troupe um, that was made up of Mormons that were based in, in Pasadena who did Israeli folk dances as part of their attempt to understand, um, you know, the Hebrew Bible better, and, other, and but also to understand contemporary Israel. There were these liberal folk dance practitioners who weren't coming at it um, from a religious perspective who, um, who, again, were just learning Israeli folk dances alongside, you know, Yugoslavian colos or, you know, whatever, you know, Czech polkas, those kinds of things Um, and that this was part of the repertoire that you would just learn um, if you wanted to be part of this, you know, movement. There was a sense that it helped young people adjust to to help them kind of develop as as individuals, but also to, again, cohere um, with a larger society. So a very liberal integrationist view, I would say, of um, what folk dance could do. And so for those practitioners, Israeli folk dance, again, was a very um, beloved, uh, one of the beloved, you know, kind of forms that they took up in those years.
1: So, given that there's this wide range of people participating in Israeli folk dance, there must have been different understandings of, of the, you know, the significance, the importance of the dance as well. And you make an interesting point also about tensions between American Zionism being maybe not Aliyah centered and, and cultural Zionism. Could you speak about the different meanings of folk dance?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, so certainly for yeah, I and mean, there, there were definitely. Um, you know, slightly different goals and different understandings of what Israeli folk dance was supposed to do among these different groups. And as I mentioned, um, these internet, these non-Jewish, you know, international folk dance practitioners, it was really part of, they weren't necessarily interested in Israel per se, you know, on its own. Aside from a few outliers, like this Mormon group I mentioned, who really were interested in Hebrew and Israel and went to Israel and so on, a lot of those non-Jewish practitioners were, you know, interested in sort of supporting pluralism, um, but uh, it wasn't really about Israel per se. Now, this was very different for, let's say, the folk, the, the Jewish dance educators for whom um, Israeli folk dance you know, again, someone like Torah Lapson or Fred Burke, who was arguing that this was going to be the way to reach Jewish young people, that the dance was going to be the sort of, that if you wanted to reach um, young Jews, which was very much, a uh, uh, you know, a des- desideratum for American Jews in the post-war years, you know, there's a lot of hand-wringing in those years about how are we going to get young Jews to be loyal to the community, to, to want to grow up Jewish and to start their own Jewish families later on. And there was a sense that, you know, just sort of, once a week in the Sunday school classroom wasn't going to be enough. Um, And so there was this argument that something like dance was going to be the way to create an embodied kind of affective relationship with Israel, with other Jews, with Judaism, that this was kind of the gateway in a sense, that through the body um, that you would reach young people, that they would feel um, connected to other Jews, that they would feel connected to, to Israel, and that then you could... Hope to interest them in other things like Jewish history and Jewish languages and, and that sort of thing. So very different aims in that sense. And then among Zionist youth, um, who you know, depending on where they were in the spectrum, um, were either focused on Aliyah or, uh, who were at the very least, interested in helping to support a kind of socialist, uh, you know, uh, socialist Jewish, um, you know, entity. Uh, in the middle east that folk dance was um, you know it was also a means of bringing in young people and, and and kind of winning their loyalty to these specific movements um and that within these movements um is really folk dance really served along with dance? Uh, I mean, along with excuse me, with with dress, with kind of a, a rhetoric of nonconformism, that it was this kind of youth, um, almost countercultural code, that dance was a very important part of that. Again, here it's sort of the aesthetics was in a way as important as the politics. I mean, the politics were important, but um, within these groups to be a kind of politically engaged left leftist, you know. Um, zionist young person the dance was um, a really important facet of that also that it was a way of being not like the mainstream that if the mainstream people were watching you know kind of cowboy movies and uh or just sort of mindlessly partaking of kind of you know other forms of youth culture or sort of mainstream culture that this israeli folk dance um was was a way of countering that—that that it was something else, um, that it wasn't mainstream. Um, that you could go up to your training farm in rural Vermont and dance these these folk dances and and read, you know, some of the countercultural literature, and that this was a way of um, kind of <laughs> fighting the power in a sense, but in a very Zionist idiom. Um, So, yeah, there were these these different groups were doing different things. They were putting Israeli folk tents to to different uses. And then also there was a sort of show business component, too, by the by the early 60s. You know, we think about Milk and Honey being on Broadway in 1961, where there was a sort of showbiz glitz or sort of a money making venture as well, which was very different. And you and you have someone like uh, a group like Habonim, um, which went on you know, the Steve Allen show, primetime television in the late 50s. And you see in the, the minutes. Um, after that that performance, they were very disgruntled with with how it had gone, because they thought if you know, here was this this television show, they didn't understand, you know, um, what was at stake, that there was a, this basic disconnect between what the Habonimniks thought it was about, which was, you know, dancing this collectivist dance that was done in the Kibbutzim in Israel, and it was the socialist Zionist form of expression, and here was this you know, national television show, this variety show essentially, which for whom you know, it was all about entertainment. It was just showbiz. So you could see the disconnect, um, and certainly in that case, and there are others where um, people really weren't putting it to the same uses, and yet everyone could seemingly agree that um, it was something they wanted to do, um, but, but that they were doing it for different reasons.
1: And in some ways, it seems like there would also be a disconnect between the idea of this dance as as political, but also as sort of a a modern consumption, uh, something that could be consumed in in, in particular ways. And maybe that comes across most clearly in the section on Israeli goods in American Jewish culture. Mm -hmm,
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's true. And there was. Some discomfort, you know, the, the, the people who were most active and, you know, who I talk about in, in the chapter, really, Hadassah, um, who were doing fashion shows uh, in these years, and then the, the women's synagogue groups who were really active in importing um, Judaica, and not just Judaica, but Israeli goods that, you know, might not have anything to do with kind of Judaism per se, be they, you know, uh, bookends or ashtrays or candy dishes. But who are making the argument that these were goods that, if you, um, you know, encouraging you know Jewish women especially um, to to buy these goods and to make their their houses more, quote unquote Jewish by doing that, when in fact the objects themselves might not have any. Pollockically um, sort of speaking, anything to do with the maintenance of of Judaism or of Jewish life, but that um, there was some discomfort among kind of uh, cultural commentators who who saw this as as you know kind of this this very shallow consumerist means of um, kind of engaging with Israel um, and were concerned about that and also concerned about the, sort of the aesthetics of some of the the wares that were coming in but for a lot of these women who were making the case that it was important that um, American Jews promote these goods, that they import them, promote them and buy them, um, they they felt that, um, you know, this was a form of agency. I mean, they didn't put it in those terms, but this was, you know, uh, meaningful. This to them was was a very meaningful way of... There was making the home more Jewish, or of kind of publicly performing Israel, with, you know, in the form of a fashion show, of um, you know, bringing Israel to wider audiences, and that they didn't necessarily see that this was uh, kind of a vulgar and sort of this was the rap for, you know, among cultural commentators, it was vulgar, that was materialistic, um, but for for women and men who were engaged in this, um, they really defended the um, these forms of engagement as. In very meaningful ways of of you know kind of coming to know Israel in everyday life, so there really was this tension certainly, but for for those actors who were engaged in the importing and the consuming and who were you know again parading around in these outfits and and were making the case that uh, other Americans should be doing so as well, I think it was a very sincere um, you know means of um, of of trying to uh, you know trying to make Israel relevant. You know, to their everyday lives, and we're trying to show that it was.
1: So you call the process domesticating Israel, which I thought was was a really interesting and helpful full term. But could you also talk a little bit about the differences that perhaps existed in public and private spheres in terms of consumption of Israeli goods?
0: Yeah. So I mean, are you talking along the uh, along the, the lines of sort of the the fashion shows versus still talking about the the goods?
1: Yeah, the good maybe goods in the home versus mm-hmm. the fashion shows and things of that nature. How yeah. sort of a, a public face is different from private,
0: Yeah, sure. So. so for Hadassah, um, who were doing who were thinking of their work as, as very public, right? So for the women's um organiza- the, the synagogue organizations, the women the sisterhoods that were involved in importing goods and were really making the case that the home um should have these wares, it was very much a, you know, um, and in the interest of kind of Judaizing the home or making the home more Jewish and so they thought of it in terms of really a private um, the private sphere, but for Hadassah these are women who were very much engaged in and it's not to say that there was an overlap between the two groups that there certainly was um, but that the mandate for each sort of organization was, was different and for women within the Hadassah context, they certainly were very much engaged in public relations work um who were trying to um you know raise funds for Israel, but also to kind of reach out to the to the wider Jewish public and to the wider public um, more generally and to make the case that Israel was an ally that um, Jewish women should be active um, in the public sphere, whether it was trying to influence legislation or simply make other Americans aware of what was at stake, right, Um, and what was happening in the Middle East. And so the fashion show, I argue, um, which which started up in the late 40s, Now, Hadassah was funding a fashion and design institute in Jerusalem, starting in the late 40s as part of their uh, kind of vision of... Um, the rehabilitative work, as they put it, that needed to be done to help integrate the masses of new immigrants um, into Israel in the late 40s and early 50s to integrate them into Israeli life. And so in the United States, Hadassah chapters were involved in helping to fund some of these kind of rehabilitative vocational projects, like the fashion and design school. Um, but then, so as part of the work was you know, targeted to Israel itself. But in the American context, these women, the leadership, and also the local chapters wanted to showcase what they were doing to help raise funds for what they were doing uh, in Israel, but then also to to use these Israeli fashions and the fashion shows as a way of arguing that. Um, the work that the sort of the fashion production that was that they were helping to fund in Israel was of American quality. Right. Again, it was this the sense that the argument that needed to be made was that Israel was, quote unquote, like us, that it was a natural ally because it was um in, you know, building a fashion industry, for example, that was like the American fashion industry that was, um, you know, modeling itself on American ready to wear sportswear, um, that kind of thing. And this is, I argue, what was going on in part in these fashion shows that were happening all over the country um, in the 40s, the 50s and the 60s, where these these members of these local chapters of Hadassah were actually Serving as the models um, and and uh, inviting local newspapers at local television shows, there were news reels of these fashion shows that were being shown in movie theaters uh, all over uh, the country. That Paramount, you know, had been involved in in creating. So definitely, there were Hadassah was trying to reach out to the wider public and again to use fashion um, as a means of. You know, showing that there was this kind of natural, quote unquote, uh, congruence between American society and Israeli society. Um, and, and it's interesting considering, you know, uh, how um, sort of the, the foundations of, of uh, certainly in the Yeshuv that this was, you know, going to be a socialist state. Well, by the early 50s, uh, certainly Israel was trying to win, you know, American investment, to, to encourage American investment. And in part of what American Jews were arguing was that well no no the Israel now is very much remaking itself in a capitalist mode and look at the fashions they're creating and and so this is um you know part of what Hadassah was trying to show. Well at the same time they mentioned earlier through the fashion show trying to showcase you know even while they were were saying look at these you know fashions that would be indistinguishable from you know what American designers are producing look how much like us these Israelis are. At the same time, they were also trying to showcase some of the more, um, sort of Eastern influenced, um, outfits and ensembles and were even doing, um, you know, having, it's really. You know, sort of Yemenite folk dance at the beginning of these fashion shows and, and showcasing um, fashions that were again influenced by Yemenite embroidery um, or that were drawing on other kinds of Eastern kind of immigrant Jewish groups that were adding to the mix and so they were trying to do two things at once you know again as I mentioned earlier the, the kind of showing that there was something really unique about this Israeli culture that it was pulling together all these different threads and all these different Jewish immigrant communities um, like America of course you know an immigrant nation um, but at the same time to say, oh, look, they're producing things that are just like, you know, the American market is producing. And um, and, and so, you know, they are these natural this nation is a, a natural ally of the United States in that sense.
1: The role of the America-Israel Chamber of Commerce is really interesting here, too, because it seems to really blur the line between uh, importing products and consumption and advocacy. Yeah, kind
0: of yes. Um yeah, I mentioned that group in the chapter, and actually, I first encountered the group um, when I was doing work on the America Israel Pavilion at the 1964 World's Fair because it was a subsidiary of this, this America Israel Chamber of Commerce and Industry that had created that, uh, the pavilion, in the interest of boosting the imports uh, to the United States and winning these sort of new audiences for, or larger audiences for Israeli goods. And yet, uh, in, in in the years that I'm looking at, um, in the 50s and 60s, they were really starting to lobby the American government um, in, to try to counter the the Arab boycott. Um, and so, on the one hand, they see themselves as these businessmen, and and if you look at the issues of their their in-house magazine from these years, it's very much about well, how can I invest in Israel and how do I import these goods, and really trying to build these kind of alliance, these, these very concrete sort of alliances between. Kind of business sectors in the U.S. and in Israel, um, but yeah, then also uh, you start to see more and more notice of these, you know, well, we're going to go to D.C., we're trying to meet with, you know, these, these congressmen, um, and who, you know, on the one hand, seem to sort of take for granted that there was, again, this, this kind of natural interest, like, oh, well, of course America wants to invest in Israel. They're our best ally in the, the Middle East, and we want to build markets for American goods in the Middle East, and so on, um, but, over the course of the 50s and 60s had to start Really making the case for, in light of the Arab boycott, for why Americans should be, you know, buying Israeli goods—that they had to kind of reconsider and think about. Well, maybe it isn't self-evident after all, um, and that you know really had to to start, as you said, acting as uh, political advocates. Um, and it's it's funny and interesting that you know a group like Hadassah or the American Israel Chamber of Commerce and industry build themselves as non-political. You know that you know they'd say on the one hand, you know. About themselves as non-political organizations, um, but on the other hand, and this is especially true of the American-Israel Chamber of Commerce and Industry, um, but clearly, we were engaged in increasingly in, in what we would certainly call political work, um, and that yeah, that that consumption and that advocacy, sort of consumer advocacy, was shading very seamlessly into a kind of political advocacy, and I think that that has you know implications. That you know the book stops in '67, but I think that that. Um, really we can think about how that plays out even today, the ways in which in a very different context, um, consumptions of his, consumption of Israeli really goods has sort of been seen now as a kind of counteracting of um, other kinds of just sort of BDS and other kinds of things. And that um, it's interesting to see the ways that the sort of the roots of this were being laid um, in the 50s and 60s when um, the conversation was very different and these actors you know, tried to insist that what they what they were doing wasn't political, but but what I try to argue is that, you know, certainly it was shading into political activism and advocacy even then, um, even in the fifties and sixties.
1: Well and and the organizations that that think of themselves as doing cultural exchange also build themselves as non political. Right. Um But there's some line being blurred there as well. So I guess I'm thinking about your section on the America-Israel Cultural Foundation. Maybe you could speak about that. Yeah,
0: yeah. So, yeah, the last chapter of the book is about what we would think of as maybe high culture and um, art and music in particular and really the the, the sort of corporate – organization of or the foundation that was most involved in that, in the American context, most involved in this work was, as you said, the um, America-Israel Cultural Foundation, which is still around, um, and which yet yeah, absolutely built itself as a non-political and non-partisan. Um, the work that it did in these years was, again, like a group like Hadassah was involved in stuff in Israel in helping to, to fund, um, you know, the arts over there, but which was, very much engaged in PR work and sponsoring organization, uh, uh, sorry, um, exhibitions of Israeli art, some of the major exhibitions of Israeli art um, in the 50s and 60s in the, in the American context. The AICF was there, very active doing that, also bringing over the Israel Philharmonic Orchestra. In these years, bringing over INBAL. This was the organization that was really in, in partnership with local sort of Jewish uh, communities But there was really the premier kind of corporate sponsor of these Israeli cultural outfits um, that it was bringing over. And again, as part of this attempt to um, kind of sell Israel, in a sense, to the wider American public, um, you know, their argument in their own, in their magazine, in, you know, how they um kind of framed the work that they were doing. This organization did talk about themselves as non-political, but then in the same breath would say, well, you know, the arts is going to be so important in, you know, helping to spread the American way, you know, in the post-war world, that it was seen as an alternate to kind of hardcore military um, you know, propagandizing and and, and you know um and, and those kinds of things, but was certainly um and they were very explicit about this. Um, a way that, you know, America was going to help you know, further its own goals in in the Cold War, you know, and in the post-war world. And and this is what, you know, leaders of the American Israel Cultural Foundation uh, and kind of spokesmen for the organization were certainly making this argument. Um, and this was, in a larger sense, and part of what I'm arguing in the book is that this is why Israeli culture was, in a sense, so very useful um, for American Jews in this period, that partaking of Israeli culture, promoting it and consuming it and doing it very publicly was a way for american jews to kind of show other americans um that you know they were good citizens in a sense that the what they were doing by building an you know alliance that, uh, with with israel in this cultural realm was um in tune with what you know american elites uh, governmental elites and cultural elites and business elites were arguing that America should be doing, that it should be opening markets, you know, in the Middle East and the Far East, that it should be trying to showcase uh, American goods and American way of life uh, in places like the, um, the American exhibition in Moscow in the late 50s, that this was going to be the way of winning allies, that this was going to be the way to win the Cold War. Um, and that American Jews were tapping into that. And while relations with Israel actually wasn't that high on the agenda for these sort of cultural cold warriors um, who were looking at Europe, who were looking at the Soviet Union, to a lesser extent looking at the Middle East, but were also very interested in winning Arab allies. So Israel wasn't actually really at the top of the agenda for a lot of these American elites, but American Jews were tapping into that rhetoric and into that way of framing um, the importance of culture and building cultural alliances across national borders, that they were tapped that the American-Israel Foundation, America-Israel Cultural Foundation and other kind of boosters of Israeli culture were tapping into that rhetoric and were using it um, to, um, to make the case, uh, both in the American Jewish community and in the wider American realm, that that relationship with Israel mattered, that Americans should be partaking of these Israeli cultural forms, right? That this was all of a piece. Uh, and again, that American Jews were then kind of showing that they were on the same page um, with other Americans by doing that.
1: And I imagine, particularly because we're talking about high culture here, that there would have been tension between those interested in advocacy and, and celebrating Israel and American relationships, but also those who are interested primary, primarily in aesthetics.
0: Yes, yeah. So that's one of the major tensions um, that I talk about in that in that chapter is that, you know, for, um, you know, sort of the art museums and the, the kind of the art establishment, um, there was a kind of tension between kind of amateur boosters. Um, certainly, many of them were amateurs. Some of these earliest exhibitions of Israeli art in the American context were done by you know, collectors, rabbis, people who were not uh, trained as you know curators, uh, as collectors, who were very active in in, in organizing and and promoting Israeli art. And um, didn't yeah, as you said, didn't always see eye to eye with um, kind of the cultural gatekeepers at places like the Museum of Modern Art, the Metropolitan Museum of Art um, who might have been interested in Israeli art but only of, of a particular sort. Um, and you see critics for example, uh, Catherine Yacklson was one of the, the major amateur um, collectors and promoters of Israeli art in the years that I'm looking at. and she um, put together a, a a couple of, of exhibitions, but one was in Washington, Washington, D.C. in the early 60s, and it was at a synagogue, Um and it was really kind of a hodgepodge of Israeli art um from, you know, the 20th century, uh, and what she was trying to do was, to, in essence, kind of celebrate Israel and to show the local community, um, you know, what... You know, oh, that this was a nation that was really coming into its own Um, and also to use, uh, you know, the entrance fee to help raise funds for the synagogue Um, and local critics, you know, art critics in the Washington newspapers were very, very dismissive of the exhibition because they thought, you know, this, you know, if you want to do a service to Israeli art and they weren't saying that there wasn't good Israeli art, they were saying there was, but that this wasn't, this wasn't it and that it was actually harming. Um, if you wanted to put the word out or to kind of win admirers for kind of the avant-garde in Israeli art, that this was was doing um, this wasn't doing any good, and so then she came back you know, kind of wrote back to the newspaper and said, well, I wasn't trying to you know say this was you know the finest art you know out there, but that this was this is about you know um, championing Israel and strengthening Israel and helping American Jews you know kind of celebrate Israel, and so there was a real. Um, there was a real disconnect, and there were times that you know that, that there was a convergence. Um, you know, there was this art Israel show at MoMA in the early '60s that was put together professionally, um, but then also had some support from the America Israel Cultural Foundation. So this was a. a there were times when there was kind of a dovetailing of interest, but again, um, these different actors. We're still doing it for different reasons, you know. The excuse me, the Museum of Modern Art was doing it for aesthetic reasons, um, and you know, the American Israel Cultural Foundation was doing it as part of their agenda, you know, to try to win, uh, you know, kind of uh, help bolster that alliance between the U.S. and Israel. And this was not MOMA's, you know, intention in, in in you know putting together their Art Israel show in the early 1960s. It wasn't about you know necessarily building alliances or bridges. It was about well, how you know. Here's this this national art um, and we want to put it in conversation with, uh, you know, the current, you know, current trends and in in international art and to put that before the American public. So different goals, different aims. But, you know, in that instance, um, these different parties were able to kind of work together um, and get each get what they needed out of it,
1: you know. So it sounds like throughout through over all of these different types of cultural engagement. So if we think about the books, the dance, the products, art and music. And in all of these things, there seem to be overlapping um, spheres of interest, right? So some people are interested in the sort of universal pluralistic society. Others are art lovers. Some people seem to be interested primarily in the Jewish content versus the Israeli content. Do these ever? I mean, how how do they overlap? How do they gel? And how are they disconnected? Sort of in a general sense.
0: Yeah. So I mean, I talk about in the you know the conclusion um, that. If we're looking at the cultural realm at these very at these particularly cultural engagements, that what what appears is this, as I call it, an elastic Israel, right? That seemed like it could be all things for all people, right? I mean, that was part of the um, what worked so well about these cultural engagements in those years that there was, as you say, there seemed to be something in it for everybody, um, and you know, and part of what I'm arguing is that culture and you know, for me, the work of, um, for example, Wendy Wall has been really important because she talks about um, uh, this kind of uh, a discourse of consensus at mid-century where these different elites in American life were able to or at least tried to talk about um, uh to use similar kinds of, of of terms to talk about um diversity to talk about freedom um and that there was this kind of shared vocabulary that everyone was using at the time but that this actually masked a lot of um uh, a great diversity of opinion about what these these things actually meant so Culture is kind of serving the same way I argue for American Jews and their the ways that they're thinking about Israel in these years. That it's it, it's kind of served as a a kind of meeting ground that these different groups that might not have actually seen eye to eye, whether it was Zionist youth uh, and these sort of amateur collectors, these businessmen in the American Israel Chamber of Commerce and Industry, um, non-Jews who were doing it for for various reasons, whether they were religious actors or not the culture at least seemed to provide a place that these people could come together and at least have a kind of shared conversation about Israel. Um, while back in their own kind of corners, these groups didn't necessarily um, see Israel in the same way or, you know, see that um, Israel was could do even the same things in the American context um, for uh, for American actors. But the culture did serve as um, again a kind of privileged space or almost a neutral space in which these different groups could kind of come together and talk about, about Israel um, in, uh, in, in some kind of meaningful way um, at the time. And so in, in many ways, it really was a kind of a zone of first contact. Um, for uh, certainly, for American Jews who were trying to kind of present Israel to uh, to the wider American public, um, that this was a way uh, that they could do it, and that it it on the face of it seemed non political, which made it maybe seem safer for American Jews uh, again on, on the face of it, but that actually ended up being a way in which American Jews were able to kind of test out what it meant to um, to explore pol- the political ramifications also of that relationship. Um, at the-
1: and in some ways, I guess leading into the special relationship that the the U.S. and Israel seem to have continued after that point,
0: right? Yeah, I mean, this was uh, you know largely you know since I'm talking about before the Six Day War. um, it was really before there was a, a true, what we would call a patron client relationship between, between the US and Israel. I mean, a part of what was going on in these years is that, you know, I think it's easy to forget from our vantage point how much was still in flux um, between 48 and 67, where there seemed to be a lot of uh, support among the American populace for Israel. Israel seemed to be seen in a positive light. Um, certainly there was a lot of support in Congress. Um, but, you know, depending on the president, depending on the administration, it wasn't really clear how that relationship was going to take shape, uh, and American Jews weren't really sure, um, you know, so much had changed so quickly in how American Jews could present themselves to the American public. Um, so, you know, there was a lot of, you know, you know questions about what the relationship would look like politically, about what Jewish authenticity looked like um, in these years. And so culture, these cultural engagements, I, I think, um, and I argue Really, again, served as a kind of laboratory for American Jews who just didn't know yet um, how safe it was to be kind of, Mm -hmm. you know, publicly Jewish, to be, you know, publicly allied with another nation state. You know, would this dual loyalty charge come up and and how how is this all going to shake out? It just wasn't clear. Um, So things like folk dance and art and music and and books again, seemed to be a kind of um, uh, a testing ground, a way to kind of to to test out how interested other Americans were in this 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 entity um, and to see how to what extent, you know, American Jews could kind of sell that um, that relationship and uh, that nation um, to their fellow Americans.
1: Great. Thank you so much, Emily. Uh, we've taken up probably too much of your time. Um, <laughs> sure. And maybe this is an unfair question since you've just finished this project, I guess, but can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on? Yeah, now?
0: sure. So I'm actually um, doing research. I'm in um, in the Atlanta area uh, right now. Um, I've been um, for, for a few months and uh, my next project, I'm looking at the same time period. So I just kept Get quite enough of this post-war moment. I'm really fascinated by it, by this sort of this liberal integrationism uh, and and its limits, or it's, its achievements and its limits. Let's say, which is it's a lot of what the book is about. But um, in a new vein, I'm looking at um, uh, at Atlanta um, in this this period, sort of through the civil rights and uh, war on poverty eras, through the early '70s, and thinking about Jewish women actually. Uh, organization women and things like Hadassah and the National Council of Jewish Women, the coalitions they were building with other women's organizations um, and other women's groups in trying to kind of remake Atlanta as a vanguard city of the modern South, um, including kind of social engineering social welfare culture um, all these sorts of things um, and so yeah um, so again it, the, the connection I think is sort of that that liberal integrationist moment the uses of culture um, but also how that shades into politics uh, but now looking as also at, at social welfare initiatives and um, how Jewish women were the coalition's they were building and, and sort of the limits and the tensions uh, among those coalitions as well uh, Jewish women African Americans Women, Christian women, you know, how all this was shaking out in um, kind of modern South uh, in the 50s and 60s.
1: That sounds like a great project, and I I hope you'll come back and talk to us about it when you're done. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it, and I hope to speak to you soon. Thanks so
0: much for having me.